welcome to another episode of our podcast that we will hopefully soon have a name for. We're a number of episodes in. You think we we'd get that covered, but I guess we're focusing on material. Today we have what I think is a great topic. We're going to be talking about what software developers actually do and what skills are required to be successful as a software developer. I think this is an interesting one. We've got several of us here this morning. Sam, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah. My name is Sam. Been with the SEMA for five years. Moved into application support about six months ago. Basically, my role is to uh, just identify any issues uh, in production and relay it over to uh, our engineers. This is a good topic to have you on, and Damon, I'll introduce in a moment, because you're wanting to maybe move into engineering. So this is a good topic, you know, where to put your focus. Uh, Damon, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, so my name is Damon. I've been with the SEMA for about a year and a half. Uh, also been in the application support role for about seven months now. Um, and just like Sam said, um, we basically identify issues, troubleshoot, and then report over to the engineers to uh, try to get those resolved as soon as possible. Great. Thank you. Dave, you want to introduce yourself? Howdy, howdy. Uh, my name's Dave. I'm in the development team over on Atlas. And my job as a software developer and my role on this podcast is to serve as an example of what not to aspire to, probably. Perhaps serve as a warning, maybe, to others, when possible. Noted. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Mike. Uh, I'm also engineer here at ASEMA. I've been here for some years, and I've been a software developer for quite a bit longer than that, and we're excited to talk today. I'll lead into this conversation. I think that through media, people sometimes get a misleading impression of what a software developer does. They might get the impression we spend all of our days at blackboards writing obscure Greek symbols, or perhaps coming up over and over again with the great new idea that's going to change the world. Maybe we think that we are alone at a computer all of the time with a great deal of caffeine. It's trying to uh, bang out that next great thing. And there may be a little bit of truth to all of those things, but all of them are, I think, fairly misleading. They don't really capture most of what we spend our time doing. And I also think they don't necessarily capture what are the most important skills that make a person successful as a software developer. And I might start this conversation with some suggestions about what software development actually is. If I were to say one thing, and this is something that's fairly different from what happens in school and also from what happens in media is that software development is, in most cases, a fundamentally social activity. We build software together as a group. That, that may seem surprising. Like, you know, how do you write code together? Well, there's actually a lot of ways you can write code together. There's a common practice in the industry of pair programming where you literally have two people sitting at the same desk. There's a lot of other ways to collaborate as well. People plan together. They remotely pair together. So somebody's kind of watching your screen and chatting with it as you go. There are code reviews. There are discussions that come up about the code. There are probably a number of other collaboration channels that I'm not even thinking of. I do want to point out that software development, software engineering is very much a social phenomenon. And the people who tend to be quite successful are people who work together with other people. Uh, the second thing I think uh, is important to understand about software development that, that sometimes people don't understand going in is that nobody knows how to do it. 
I'm overstating a little bit, but <laughs> only a little. Yeah, exactly. You're talking about a field that is so vast, that is changing so quickly day to day. And so young. And so young. That a whole group of people in the software development community who vehemently react to people claiming the title software engineer because the next youngest field of engineering study is chemical engineering. And that's 700 years old. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, go learn all the best practices and then bake on them for half a millennium and then come back and talk to us. And to that point, we're not very good at it yet. I, I'm maybe talking a little bit tongue in cheek, but not as much as you might think. There's a lot of things we just haven't figured out very well. The best practices in the industry are still evolving. And none of us really know uh, in great depth what we're doing. There's no set of standards. So we're figuring it out as we go. You know, I know Google is a verb now, <laughs> referring to a specific brand, but search engine of your choice, which is usually Google, is a primary tool for developers. We spend a lot of time just searching, figuring out how to do something, or we ask somebody, or we read up on how to accomplish something, because we don't know how to do it. And that is not a sign that we're doing something wrong. Acknowledgement that we don't know what we're doing is actually one of the most important things I think it takes to be successful as a software engineer, because once you are aware of what your limitations are, you know where to put your effort. You know that developing search skills and the ability to work with ambiguity, to be able to operate even though you don't know everything, which is uncomfortable, is a big deal. I would say that there's one other thing that I think is fundamental for software development. And I've said this a number of times over my career to people who are aspiring software developers. And this doesn't just apply to software, but it very much does apply, is that writing software is a largely an exercise in frustration management. If that sounds scary, it shouldn't. All my kids, but my daughter's learning to play piano and she tends to be a bit of a perfectionist. And when she makes a mistake, she, she just has a really hard time with it. And she wants to shut down and cry and say, oh, I made a mistake. And I tell her that, well, there's a phrase that we say all the time. Mistakes are proof that you're trying. Nice. And, and learning to recognize that. Learning to know that you're going to be frustrated a lot of the time. Because that's what it takes to accomplish something new that you don't know how to do. And being okay with that, being able to live with that frustration, knowing that, yeah, this is hard. It is beating me down and I don't know how to solve it. And I'm going to keep banging at it anyway until I figure it out is a fundamental skill. And perhaps the most important skill in being a software developer, because we're here to solve problems. Sometimes we think we're here to solve code, but that's really not the answer. We're here to solve problems. I started out with, uh, with quite a bit of material there for, for us to chew on for a bit and discuss. Hopefully that, that sparks some discussion. I have other thoughts as well. Oh, yeah. I just, I've got five pages of rebuttal, and if I may take the first topic. No, you're, you're bang on. Uh, bang, bang on. I can't remember the show. It's a meme now, but I, I want to say the show was Adventure Time, and there's like a dog with glasses. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's Adventure Time, but the, the, the character is this dog who wears glasses, and... He's a meme now. If if you just if you just search for being bad at something, you will come up with pages and pages and pages of this. And it's just him. It's a cartoon, and this is like serious life advice. And he he says, "Look, sucking at something is the first step to being sort of good at something." And that is absolutely true with software development. You're gonna you're gonna sit down and you're gonna have 
you're gonna have people on one side of you that are saying, "Oh, there's a right way to do this. We need to get this nailed down." Then you're gonna have people on the other side of the spectrum that are be like, "Oh, there's 17 different ways to skin a cat, and you need to know all of them." And they're both right. There's usually a best way to do something, and sometimes the best way to be a great software developer is to spend 10 years forgetting stuff so that when somebody shows you a problem, you have forgotten seven ways to solve that. And so you just like, you have instincts. You're just like, Oh yeah, this is just that. We'll just, we'll just go do that thing. But when you're starting out, yeah, you've, you're like, okay, if I add this to that, I'm going to get this value. I can make a computer do math. Let's make the computer do math. And then we solve the problem. And that, that, that is like essential. I have like individual tips and ideas, but I would say the most important thing I think you said, Mike, is that software development is a social endeavor. It's almost a bait and switch because like I definitely got into computers because they were the only rational human beings in my childhood. Like I (laughs) grew up in a crazy part of the world and it's it's like computers didn't bully me. And right. And if you've ever worked with a computer, you know, they're absolutely tyrannical and just, you know, they refuse to work. The computer always did what it was told. And I loved that about computers. And it was much, much, much later in life that I realized that, wait a minute, having a career in this great big raft of monkeys called humankind, oh boy, yeah, everything is a social endeavor. If you want to go off and solve a math problem, you can do that on your own time. But if you you want to have a career, people are more important. They're always going to be more important. I learned that way late in my career, and it definitely influenced the tra- trajectory on my career. You know, if I could add on to a little bit of what you said there, you talked about going and solving math problem. I read an article, I don't remember exactly where it was, sometime in the last week, talking about Albert Einstein, who is the kind of the canonical icon of the myth of the lone genius that uh, you know, he went off in a corner and came out with mm-hmm. modern physics. He was working at a university with other physicists. And he wasn't even the first one to derive some of his equations. Um, the math he used was based on what other people were working on around him. Basically, nothing mm-hmm. that he came up with was as radical as he's often credited for, and but was largely a group effort. Now, that's not to diminish the fact that he did have novel ideas, and he was able to make a leap that others of his peers didn't make. But, and this is, this is vitally important, He could never have made those leaps if he wasn't surrounded by that network of peers who brought him to that point where he could make the leap, brought him to that premises where he could jump across the other side. Yeah, you you can't integrate, you know, five different people's ideas if you don't go hang out with five other people. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense. For you guys personally, do you feel like you guys have evolved a lot more whenever you started working with a team and became more team involved? Myself, absolutely. I was somebody who did coding by myself as a kid back in junior, well, actually elementary school. I did a little bit, but I didn't have a computer at the time. That was in the days before everybody had a computer, before they had a computer in their pockets for that matter. But I did a little bit when I was quite young. And then in junior high, we had a computer and I wrote basic programs in the basic computer language. And it was fun. And I loved it. It was all alone. You know, I had like a, a manual that I that I pull out examples from and then try to tinker with them. And then in school, I, I largely worked alone as well. Then in a career, suddenly it was all with other people all day. And the amount of progress I was able to make while collaborating with other people was remarkable. And it also changed the character of my work. 
one thing that you do when you're learning typically is you you start from scratch. You, you build everything from scratch because they, they want you to learn the fundamentals. But professionally, it'd be really foolish to build everything from scratch. There are many decades of computing that have happened and people have built code that is open source or has a dedicated library within the company you're working on. There is other code that's been written that you can use. And if you're doing everything yourself, you're doing it wrong in many, many ways. You should, the, uh, that's another very important thing that we should learn about uh, software development is that it's mostly about plugging together components that other people have written because the community together builds things that are really good and then we use those, the novel things that we do is we take those pieces, those components, and put them together to make something happen that we want to happen. But most of the work has already been done. For example, most of us work in high-level languages. I mean, we don't write assembly code for device drivers. There are people who do. But most of us are writing in higher-level languages that are resting on interpreters and compilers all the way down that other people have written, and, and we probably will never modify so it's using the other people's work that we use all the time and, and learning that was an important leap for me to make. Yeah, along the same lines. I remember my first like full-time programming job, they they left me alone in the corner of a basement they, and uh, I just cranked out code and it was exactly like you would think, you know, just like had the lights turned out and you know, the, had my monitor in dark mode and all that stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I would I would write software the way I had always done it as a kid. I, I would spend hours and hours and hours typing code before I ever hit the compile button. And I left that job after a year and a half, and I went to a video game company, um, which I thought was my dream job. It turned out to be a nightmare job, but for a while it was a dream job. And I remember sitting down with another programmer who was senior at the time, and I said, hey, can you help me with this problem? He said, sure. And I'd been working on it all morning. And he came over and he sat down and he, he was looking over this. And there were obvious like typos in my code. And he's like, have you compiled this? And I'm like, oh no, yeah, I'm not, I'm not ready yet. And he's like, dude, yeah, no, stop. Make this compile right now. Um, stop what you're doing and make this compile. And so we spent two minutes fixing typos and we got it to compile and it didn't work. We were ready to make the next piece of it work, but I was ready to dive into another two hours of writing stuff, grinding mm. stuff out, you know, by hand. But the, the point was, is that I had been writing all this stuff just out of my head ex nihilo and this guy was just like no we need to make this work and then make the next thing work and make the next thing work and that was something that I, I did not get until i sat down with another human being who was a programmer who was familiar with the craft and like i i remember my compiler when it failed i had tied in this little sound this little funny thing you know oh you're you know wah, 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 you know kind of thing and it played this this long sound and we hit compile and it didn't work. And my computer made this big, long noise. And the guy that was sitting next to me, like in a blink of an eye, he figured out the only way you're playing that long of a song on a failed compile is because you're only hearing the sound twice a day because you're only compiling your code twice a day. Like he heard that sound. He's like, oh yeah, yeah, that's got to go. Like, like, like just immediately that's got to go. And, and I'm like, oh really? And he says, yeah, you need to be having failed compiles 20 times an hour. And I'm like, Oh, I mean, like I was genuinely shocked at that. Something I couldn't learn from a book. I had to learn that from another human. I mean, I could have somebody had written down, compile your code five times an hour, but I'm like, but why? Right. I had to be next to this person to see that. Reminds me. I was once, uh, my son was modding Minecraft and he'd written a, a tremendously large function to do something. And he went and said, can you help me with this? It, it's not working. It's not compiling. And I looked at it and all the indentation was mismatched. 
And the for, it was just formatting. The formatting was really bad. And usually, you know, that sounds like a nitpicky thing. But I said, you know, honestly, I, I can't help you with this because the formatting is so inconsistent that I can't tell what's going on just by looking at it. Because he'd been writing a lot and writing consistently. And I said, please fix the formatting. I'm not trying to be nitpicky. I'm, I'm not picking on you. I just said, I literally can't help you because I can't understand this because it, it's visually so distracting. So he went away for an hour or two and and, uh, and worked on it. And he came back to me with kind of his tail between his legs and say, uh, yeah, it works now. <laughs> I cleaned it up and I made it work while I was doing it. Just fixing the formatting made him aware that there was, you know, some mismatched curly braces somewhere. And he hadn't even deliberately fixed something, but just in the, mm-hmm. in the act of making it look good, the code started working. That kind of thing happens in a social environment. Absolutely. There's this magic aha moment as well that plays right into what we're talking about, social uh, being a social activity and what you just said about cleaning up the indentation. A lot of us get the impression that source code is how you talk to a computer, and it's not. Computers don't speak source code. They speak ones and zeros. They speak binary operators, and the compiler takes your source code and turns it into these ones and zeros, which means... We don't talk to computers with source code. Well, then who are we talking to with source code? Other people. We write our programs in a language that other people, other humans can understand. There's an ancient quote from the old, the early days of Agile, back when it was called XP, before Windows XP existed and took that trademark. Uh, Martin Fowler said, any idiot can write code a computer can understand, but good programmers write code that other humans can understand. Yeah, there's like a a profound epiphany that I love getting into somebody's head is that when you were writing software, you were writing for other humans. So if you write something and you like start moving it around and you line things up because it's funny to make the letters line up and, you know, da, 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 and, and you make a picture in the code and you're doodling a picture, but you're not explaining what you're trying to do with your program. You might think that's cool. You might think that's cute. Somebody comes along and goes, I can't read this. And you suddenly realize that, or maybe you don't realize this, but hopefully you realize that, oh, I failed at source code. The whole point of this source code was for another human to be able to read it. Yeah, or real early device, uh, advice that I love to give people is that writing readable source code is a bit like being a jerk. You don't get to decide it, right? It's, it's, you, it's like, well, I'm not a jerk. No, you don't get to decide that. We're all going to decide that about you. And readable code is the same way. If you take your code and you break it up perfectly and you split the modules up and you dry it up, you know, don't, dry is don't repeat yourself. So everything goes into you know, one specific place and, and it's all perfectly correct according to this scheme in your head that nobody else knows but you. And it's beautiful and it's perfect. And then somebody comes along and says, wow, this is really hard to read. Guess what? Your code is hard to read. You don't get to decide. It might've been fun to write. It might've been satisfying to write, but it's not actually readable and you should change it. And that person probably has some important lessons for you to learn. Sometimes we get caught up in some technique that we think is cool. To your point, that isn't what makes code legible or useful. A lot of times there's some instinct that you're talking about before and learning, well, what's, what's easy to understand, which may be different than what's you know the popular technique at the moment or that you read about last week in some uh, blog somewhere. No, it's, it's very interesting, actually, uh, for someone in application support trying to 
go over into a software developer or engineer role, just to know that not everybody knows everything. And even though they might think everything is all perfect, you know, someone can come over and just be like, hey, I don't really understand what you're doing here, you know, and they can just change it and, you know, teach you something like there's always something to learn. Yeah, it sounds like um, being a team player greatly benefits. But my question is, is there is there people that prefer to work alone? And uh, if so, does that benefit anything at all? I have a pretty strong opinion about this. The short answer is yes and yes. As much as I strongly agree that software is a social thing, there are times in this industry when... Let me back up and let me throw one wrinkle into this, a, a, a tiny little detail that I'm keeping in my head. And telepathy doesn't work. So let me use my words here. I, I have said this in the past multiple times. The best programmers I've ever worked with have, have almost universally been people who have degrees in a science field other than computers. So like math majors, um, and they're not necessarily, not necessarily science majors, I, I, linguists, people with degrees in biology, uh, and the best programmer I ever worked with had a PhD in geology. And specifically, he studied earthquakes. Not surprisingly, he and I worked at a company that dealt with vibration control. We were all about analyzing shock waves and ripples and sine waves and standing waves and, and, and reflections and that sort of thing. And he knew that stuff cold. And every once in a while, I remember there was a meeting we had where he was struggling with a problem and he said, yeah, there's this ticking sound coming out of the, the machine because every 256 cycles, we reset this thing. And I drew a graph on his whiteboard and I said, so you're saying this. And I drew a, a, you know, a joint in the graph where the thing reset. He's like, yes, that's exactly what it's doing. And I said, cool. Could you make it do this? And I redrew the graph, but I drew a smooth curve so that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't resetting to the zero point. It was starting off of zero and at the slope that it came out of the old, the previous batch in his jaw hit his chest. And he's like, holy crap, that would work. Get out of my office. I need to, I need to think about something like there was literally what he told me was go away. And I didn't hear from him for three days. I worked like 12 feet away, like two doors down from him in a tiny little office. Come, didn't see him for three days. Three days later, he comes in, he's got this yellow legal pad and it's all the pages are like standing up and frayed because they're, they've all been written on in pen. Uh, like this whole legal pad was used and he's waving it like a madman. And he's like, this, this, check this out, Dave, you got to check this out, this. And I'm like, what is this? And he says, this is the mathematical proof of the drawing that you drew on my whiteboard. It will work. He had spent three days in his office in complete silence, trying to work out the mathematical proof before he committed six months of his life to writing the software. Because the thing that I had drawn was very simple to say, but much harder to do. And he needed to prove that it could be done. And he needed absolute silence and unbroken concentration to get into the state of flow that he needed for that deep, deep level of work. So yes, absolutely to your question. There are times when software engineering is this highly, it's a very wide uh, social subject. We want five people in the room. We want to do mob programming. We want everybody talking. We want all the ideas coming out loud of our mouths. Uh, it's a noisy room. 
and we all want to collectively make the best decision that we can. And that's a fun way to program. And, and it, it's great for certain types of problems. But there's also times when, yeah, I just want to sneak off to a conference room and I want to get rid of all the external sounds because I want I want those parts of my brain that are listening and talking to other people. I want them to spin down and release their CPU cycles to the part of my brain that solves problems so that I can get into really, really deep work. So the answer is yes, you do both. And sometimes you don't get to do the one you want to do, uh, but sometimes you get to pick. And that's a good day when you get to pick uh, to do the one that, you know, the one that you really want to do that day. We often organize our time so that the socializing is in a certain part of the day. And then the focus time is in another part of the day. So that we have a long and uninterrupted stretch to think deeply about something. Tricky problems require deep concentration. And then once you come out of that, you might go back to the socializing part again. They're both necessary. You could have somebody who's just always doing the deep thinking, working on it. And what you'll end up with is very idiosyncratic code. You'll end up with something that really reflects that person. And Mm -hmm. we all have our idiosyncrasies, but we're not generally looking for a piece of unusual artwork to come from our work. Again, we're here to solve problems. And in general, you want your solution to be boring. That, I don't know if that sounds harsh or, or dull. It's not because a boring thing can be a thing of great beauty. Uh, you want a bridge to be something you don't think about at all. And 200 years later, to still be something you're not thinking about at all because it just works. And it, it may have aspects of that bridge that you find quite beautiful. Uh, structural members that by their nature are, are just beautiful things. The software does have those things of great beauty. You don't want it to be too quirky generally. Those quirky things might not hold up the way a very boring, predictable, hey, that just works uh, solution would do. There's a, a fun thing. And you can do this in earlier Ruby. Something has changed. I know you can't do this in Ruby 3. I think it doesn't work in Ruby 2.7. As of like 2.3 or 2.4, it still worked, as I recall. Uh, but it, this still works in C++ and languages that are all about bitwise stuff. But it is possible to swap two integers in three operations with no temporary variable. If you know a little bit of programming, you know that like the way you swap two numbers is you copy one to a little temporary buffer. Then you take the other number and put it where the first one was. Now, you've lost the first number. That's why you had to put it in a temporary buffer. And then you put the temporary number into the other numbers place, and you've now swapped their place. You can take A, XOR equals B, XOR equals A, XOR equals B, and that will swap A and B in place. If you go learn the rules for how XOR works, about how like if one bit is set and the other one is off, then it turns the bit on. If both bits are on or both bits are off, it turns the bit off. There's like this whole algebra for how XOR works, that you end up with one number holding itself plus like the inverse shadow XOR of the other number and you can kind of get it back and and it works. It works and it's it's super clever and I carried it around for years and years and years and years. And I would use that anytime I wrote the swap function, I would use this method because it would make people think I was so clever. And I like getting patted on the head and told that I was such a brilliant boy. And then somebody who really knew how XOR worked. And I had worked it out uh, like a really deep level. I could explain to you how this this algorithm works. Of course, if I'm going to be clever, I want to prove that I'm clever. 
And uh, just a very senior hacker walked in and he said, what happens if you try to try to swap a number with itself? And if you X or any number with itself, it shorts out, you get zero, all zeros. And the number is lost. So if you try to swap a number with itself, it sets it to zero. And my algorithm is now stupid. And the whole point of like doing this swap thing, it's like, is so that you can only do it in three operations. You don't have to, well, now I have to do an if test to see if they're the same number. And if you try to swap two different copies of the same number, it will work. It's when you try to swap a number with, like you say, swap X with X and they're pointing at the same location in memory. Then the, what you were using for storage was this sideband XOR data in the number itself. You lose that and it zeroes out. And that was the day that, that I kind of really finally learned. It's like, don't do clever stuff in production. Do the boring thing. It wasn't 1988. We weren't paying $20 for that extra byte of RAM to put the number in that we were swapping. We, we could afford it. And that's even more true today, right? We get, well, it, it isn't. It's, it's, it, everything old is new again, because as soon as you say, oh, every computer has four gigabytes of clock and, or gigahertz of clock and, and 32 gigs of RAM, as soon as you say that, somebody will come along and say, hey, can you help me with this Arduino project? Five years ago, 10 years ago, Arduinos didn't have very much RAM on them. Pick chips back then you could get in 15 years ago, you could buy them with 64 bytes of RAM on them. And so we had to pull out the old books from the 1970s of how do I make this run on a program with no memory or on on hardware with no memory? And that's coming around now. Like the big push in Ruby is to make MRuby work, which is mobile Ruby. And they're trying to make it so that it will fit in an Arduino or on a Raspberry Pi. And like the full Ruby will fit on a full-size Raspberry Pi. But if you've looked at the latest round of Raspberry Pis, it's a four gigahertz machine with, you know, gigabytes of RAM. It's, it's a full computer now. The Ruby didn't go down, didn't shrink down to meet it. The computer swelled up to be able to lift it. The point is, don't be clever. <laughs> if you're going to make a trade-off, ooh, I just realized there's a better way to phrase this trade-off. That everything is a trade-off. Never ever trade off something in exchange. Never trade off something good. Never give away something good in your code in exchange for getting to think you're clever or getting to show people that you're clever. Because they're going to come along and they're going to see your code and they're going to say, "How much did we pay for you to show me this?" Because that holds no value to me. So I've got a question for Damon Sam. So you guys are working in a uh, like a software development adjacent field, which, by the way, is a fantastic career path. There's a, a great book by Cal Newport called So Good They Can't Ignore You. And he basically tells people, if you want to go somewhere and you can't get there, like, you know, how do I get five years? It's the age old thing, right? How do you get five years of experience at a job where every job requires five years of experience, right? How, how, do, how do you break into that? And the short answer is you get a job adjacent to the job you want, right? You mm-hmm. you go into customer support. A lot of people got into programming uh, through customer support. I went in and worked at a QA department and I worked there for one week and I submitted a bug report where I told the person that wrote the thing, looking at your Windows program, I strongly suspect you're using the Borland C++ compiler because I didn't say why, but it basically there was a tiny little graphical flourish on every Windows uh, window that was a little bit different than the standard Windows thing. And that meant that it was this brand of compiler. And I used that compiler, which is why I recognized that flourish. And there's a really common bug because there was a default setting on the compiler that was dumb. And so when I submitted the report, I was able to say, the software is doing this. 
at a guess, I'm guessing you're using the Borland C++ compiler. Go into your settings and change this, and that will fix the problem. And I got a phone call the next day saying, why don't you come over and talk to the programming department? Like, literally, whoever that report got to, they were like, yes, I am using Borland. And holy crap, I do have that setting set. How did he know this? Bring him in here. I want to talk to him. So you work on your chops, work on your development, and then go into something adjacent. I just screwed up because I was going to ask you a question and I ended up starting telling a story again. I apologize. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll try to do better. My question for you too, and then I'm going to shut up and actually listen and let you answer is from where you sit, what does a software development career look like? And that that might be from here to starting at your software development. What does that look like? How are you getting ready for this? Are you getting ready for this? Is this something you want to dip a toe in or are you like locked in or like, no, this is my life. I am, uh, you know, this is my destiny. I'm going to get there. How are you guys looking at software development from where you're at? I'm ready to just dive into it. It's mm -hmm. been something that I've been interested in, but I never took the initiative to learn until I didn't feel like I was ever going to be capable of doing it, honestly, just because it looked mm -hmm. a little bit more challenging than, than it maybe actually is. I, I don't know. My brain works kind of weird, but like you were just saying, I was in a basically a customer service role. I was in processing for, I want to say like five months maybe. And then um, I decided I just kind of didn't want to be in processing anymore because I had a little bit more to offer. Not really sure mm -hmm. what it was, but I applied for the operations role and um, I, I got hired basically, you know, after a, w a week and a half or of interviews and stuff like that. I worked in ops for one day and <laughs> Basically, they were like, hey, we looked at your resume and talking to you, we feel like you're going to be really bored here. And I think <laughs> this was uh, when Ryan, before he left, um, and then he came and got me with Alicia and they were like, hey, we have better opportunities for you. With that being said, I, it looks promising for me. I, I just feel like it's something that I've always wanted to do. But like I said, I just never had the opportunity, the chance, uh, never been given a shot and, until now. Imposter syndrome biting me. It's a plague. <laughs> and it never goes away. It never goes away. Mm -hmm. I blew an estimate. Mike can confirm this. We had a an integration where there was a wrinkle to it. It, it was it was a two-week integration. And I, and I estimated, oh, yeah, this would take about two weeks. And then they said, oh, but you can only test it in production. And I went, oh, uh, okay. Make it four weeks. It what took me, what, seven months, six months. I I'm, I'm, I'm terrified to count up the actual total. And that was this year. Okay. I mean, like I, I, I started this last fall and finished like in March, like last month, we, we put the final bow on this and I was hanging my head thinking, man, they are going to fire me because I do not know how to program. And that imposter syndrome will haunt you. It never, well, hang on, let me, let me rephrase. It will try to haunt you for your entire career and it will sell you a lie. And here's the lie. Keep quiet. Keep your head down. Don't try for the opportunity right now. Just go learn something more and eventually you'll be good enough to get it. That is a lie. You will feel like that your whole life. I feel like that today. I came out of that blowing that estimate thinking, oh my gosh, I'm a terrible programmer. I'm never going to be a good developer. 
And, you know, meanwhile, I'm jumping into skills clinic with the new people and, and mentoring and teaching and everyone's telling me, this is great. This is a lot of fun. I love working with you. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm so bad at estimates. I had no idea this was going to bite us in the butt this hard. Ironically, once we sat down with the customer and said, this is not going to work, you have to make this work for us. We finished up in about three more weeks. So, you know, once we got that thing fixed, by the way, that's literally my imposter syndrome saying, I need to, I need to speak in my defense here. I'm blowing that estimate, right? Because I feel so guilty about it and that will haunt you. So get comfortable now with reaching for the golden ring when you have the chance for it. The best use of surplus privilege is finding invisible doors and opening them for other people, but never, ever forget that the use of your existing amount of privilege is if you see the golden ring, reach for it. If you see a whole bunch of golden rings around the carousel, get on the carousel. If they'll let you on, get on because you're going to tell yourself, oh, I don't deserve to be. And there'll be gatekeepers who will say, you don't deserve. And if you can sneak onto that carousel, do it. And if you can grab for that ring, grab for it. And there will be times when you're going to be like, oh man, I got this great opportunity and I so do not deserve this. I better I better grow up fast if I'm going to fill these boots. And it will make for very, very happy memories when you look back and realize I did fill those boots. It, it turns out this entire time, I absolutely was good enough to get on that carousel and grab that ring. Never negotiate against yourself. I guess that's that's the summary on that. Well put. Sam, how do you see uh, software development? Well, I'm pretty much in the same boat as Damon. I was pretty much in a customer service role for about three years. And I I told myself that I, I wanted to do something else. I actually told myself like two years into the company, working customer support it was just hard. I think what you guys were saying, imposter syndrome. And then, you know, finally, I just reached a point where like, I got to, I got to do this. I got to get out of my comfort zone. So I ended up taking up a position with operations. I did that for about seven months. And then like Damon, I was approached by Alicia and they said, Hey, we think you'd be a good role for this position in application support. So I, so I, I decided to take it. And right when I got into this role, um, that this is where I was opened to seeing uh, operations on like a different end in engineering. I haven't really like looked a lot into it, but yeah, I would, I would definitely want to learn more about it. I'm going to agree with Dave here that, you know, take the opportunity. If you've got that opportunity, take advantage of it. And to those of you who are listening, there are a lot of opportunities uh, in software development. And it may be that you keep hit running into walls and you, you feel like, man, I, I, I can't do this. I, and I think Dave gave fantastic advice. Get close to it. Get close to that role and keep doing work and take every opportunity that you can to do some of that software development work. And this applies outside of software development too. If you want to be a, an astronomer, you know, go get, get a janitorial job at the observatory, <laughs> whatever it is, get close to it and there will be opportunities. And if you keep working at it, you'll get better and you'll be surprised at how, how much everybody else around you is just figuring out as they go to. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks, guys. We've talked a lot about what software development is actually made of and, and what skills are involved and the, the, you know, the importance of of recognizing our fallibility that we all have, allowing us to grow and grow and change. I think we hit on some really great points. We're reaching the, the end of the time that I think we, we have scheduled for this. So I want to ask, is there any final thoughts, things that have been on your mind you just want to say as we've been talking? No, I think um, I came here just expecting to listen and um, I've learned a lot here. So yeah, thank you for having me. This is definitely empowering. 
yeah, I think for me personally, this was a really good one um, because we do plan on transitioning here into an engineering role soon. So it was like, oh, this is perfect. I need to listen here, you know, to learn about the struggles that you might go through or you will go through and how to go about those. And teamwork is very essential. This was helpful. Uh, Sam and Damon, SEMA is the best company I've ever worked at for having a pipeline and an investment in new programmers and turning them into experienced programmers. Hang out, come join a podcast, get close to the programming. That actually was a genius move you guys pulled here today. You absolutely have every right to be here. You're not imposters on, you know, on, on the show today. Also come hit up the Atlas team where we're working on the website that the merchants log into. There are people on that team that will say, oh, you've got a, you've got an hour free come sit with me and we'll write some code together. And you'll probably just watch and learn for most of the few times. There are skill clinics and this is less valuable for people listening to the podcast, except I want other companies and the people at other companies to know that this exists and you can do this at at your shop as well. Put on a skills clinic every day if you can, if you can afford to, you know, and if you can't afford it, make the affordance for it. And have tickets in your backlog that are marked as starter that you can have. We cut this food up nice and tiny so that somebody with, you know, a small appetite can tuck into it and and close it out safely without having to like touch the guts of the whole machine. So yeah, get close to it. The next step for, for you, Sam and Amy, the, the next steps for you, go find developers on other teams and say, Hey, can I come sit with you and and learn and just watch you type and point out your typos? And that's a a much more valuable pair programming offer than you think it might be. Uh, it's it's not a complete one way street. It is you actually providing value. Yeah, find the value you can provide and provide it, and that will be your next step forward. I would add on to what you're saying there, Dave. To those people at companies that could be doing this, you say, well, we can't afford this. We can't afford to invest in our in the growth of our employees. I would flip that. I would say you can't afford not to. There is What's so the saying? Yeah. <laughs> what if we train them and they leave? And then the counter argument is, what if we don't train them and they stay? Mm. Right? It's wildly expensive to be in that situation. So is not training them and they leave. Mm-hmm. There's no good scenario where you don't help people out and it just stays that way. Because really, it's mm-hmm. not going to stay that way. You're you're not going to have the culture and and as the end product, the software that you really want, unless you've built an environment that is conducive to building good software. That cost is going to be paid, whether or not you see it. If you have under-experienced developers who don't have an opportunity to grow their skills, then you're paying the cost of that software that isn't what it could be. You are uh, paying the tremendous cost of losing good people. Take the time. Um, and if you're out there, take the opportunities that are there. Make them at your company. It can make a tremendous difference, not just to you personally, but to the organization you're working with. Thank you, everybody. Uh, this was a great session. I look forward to talking to you next time.